So welcome to Agility at Work, One Step Ahead. I'm here with Mike Wheeler, and I'm Kim Leary. Well, uh, great to be with you, Kim, and great to know that we have a little bit of uh, work to do here, but uh, fun as well. And the rain seems to have stopped. Uh, it's been a rather nasty November day is uh, lightening up towards the uh, end of the afternoon. The uh, This is a nice conversation we have with our friend Clark Freshman, who used to visit my uh, MBA classes regularly every uh, semester I taught. Now that I'm just in executive uh, programs, that opportunity hasn't come up. And you remember Clark from some time back as well. Is that right, Kim? I, I do. I had a chance to uh, sit in the back of the room during one of his talks. Uh, my interest is in negotiation. Yours is in leadership, and we can talk about how truthful one has to be, how candid. Sometimes people aren't entirely candid, and they're doing that out of kindness. You know, they see somebody say, oh, you're looking good, and maybe the person doesn't look quite that good. But The, the importance of truth-telling and lying could not be uh, more evident right now in the times that we're in as Abs we're trying to separate out the real news and the fake news, and uh, the stakes are pretty high. Clark has been interested in uh, lie detection for a long time, as I recall. I am interested in hearing that story again about how deeply it goes in his experience and how his views have changed over time. Yeah, and whenever we're talking about lying, we're also talking about truth-telling and what that means in this day and age. So uh, let's call up uh, Clark Freshman out in San Francisco where he teaches at uh, Hastings Law School, part of the University of California system. So, Kim, I'm delighted that we've got Clark Freshman uh, with us here today to talk about lie detection. And welcome, Clark. We are very excited to have you with us today. Now, you're out in San Francisco, Clark. Uh, the weather has to be better than the rain and the cold we have here. What's it doing there this afternoon? Well, what it's doing there this afternoon is uh, difficult to predict. What it's doing right now is it's sunny, probably the top 10% of sunniness of San Francisco ever, and it is a little bit cool by our standards, so about 55, 60 degrees. Uh, if you could trade, I'll, I'll take <laughs> it, yeah. Just send that over as an attachment. Uh, but over the years, you were uh, very kind to come and visit my MBA class and do a section on lie detection that was always one of the most popular sessions of the, uh, of the year. Mm. You and I go way, way back, but will you remind me how you got into this, uh, particularly in the context of negotiation? So it's a funny story, which is that I'd always been interested in detecting lies uh, because both of my parents were incredibly big liars. My mom was actually 46 when I was born, which was quite, quite old for a woman in 1965 to have a child, and uh, somehow convinced me that she was 30 years old when I was born. It wasn't until I was 12 that I discovered uh, her real age. And my father uh, worked for what he referred to as the Defense Department. And it wasn't until after his death that I realized that he worked for a certain uh, intelligence agency amongst, amongst other things. So I always had an interest in figuring out about the truth. And I grew up during the Watergate scandals and did little one-person shows back in elementary school playing all the characters. So for as far back as I can remember, I was interested in finding out what 
what is true and what is untrue. Well, wait and a second. Then, wait a second. I don't want to let that slip by. When you were in grade okay. school, you were reenacting the Watergate hearings? Did I, get that? I was reenacting the uh, Watergate uh, hearings and various scenes from Watergate where I would play all of the characters. So I would play uh, my interpretation of uh, Henry Kissinger with a bad German-Jewish accent imitation, talking to Richard Nixon with a bad Richard Nixon accent. It would go from classroom to classroom and school to well, school. Well, we're going to defer for just a second. Um, when I was a kid, I wrote a book called Lies, Damn Lies, and Statistics, and it was about yes. pu public opinion yes. polls. And one evening, Candace and I were recently married at that time, the phone rings, and it's John Ehrlichman calling um, because there had been a scandal about uh, one of the national polls and so forth. Ehrlichman had not yet gone to jail. I also heard from from Colson and so forth. What I'm suggesting here is we could do a reenactment of the hearings and I could do Ehrlichman and Colson, if you like. <laughs> we could certainly do that. That could be that could be our next project. We can uh, we can get some friends of mine on the phone, pitch it to Netflix. We could have it probably in production next week. The roadshow version. <laughs> the roadshow version. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, I want, uh, so I, that was always my long that was my longstanding interest. And then uh, when I uh, went to law school, I had uh, wanted to be a negotiation teacher and was very interested in negotiation. And uh, my college thesis uh, over in your side of the woods at Harvard involved negotiating a pardon in the Leo Frank case, which involved figuring out the truth about what motivated these different members of the board of pardons and eventually uh, convincing them to adopt this pardon that I had drafted. Uh, so I was it always been interested in uh, lies and later negotiation. And then when I was out at Miami, I taught in my negotiation class the research on what people uh, believed to be predictors of lies. Like the number one thing is eye contact, as you can imagine, high up there is fidgeting. Uh, and in fact, both of those are, uh, are wrong. Eye contact doesn't matter that much at all. And fidgeting, it actually cuts the other way. People move uh, less, not more when they're lying. Uh, so I was about to go to a meditation retreat must have been about 2002. And I wrote to Paul Ekman, whose work I had cited and read for years, and said, I'm on the way to a meditation retreat uh, outside San Francisco. Would it be possible uh, to meet with you? Uh, and I think I also mentioned my research on uh, depression and law students, which was, of, which was of interest to him. Can I just and, hop, in, uh, hop in here? Because yes. many people actually probably do know of Paul Ekman, but it is E-K-M-A-N. Um, he has a website that I think is paulekman.com. There are some resources there as well. And he was featured in the Malcolm Gladwell book Blink, if I recall correctly. So I, correct. just, I just wanted to be sure this wasn't kind of inside Clark and Mike talk. Uh, <laughs> yes, and also to place him in a more popular context, uh, his work on the recognition of uh, facial signs of emotion was the basis for the incredible movie Inside Out, which is both a kid's movie and adult movie about uh, the role of emotion. So, uh, and, and what connected me to him in this one particular instance was that he, he's actually a big skeptic of religion and spirituality, uh, still is, uh, but at his daughter's behest, he had met with the Dalai Lama at a conference. And so he thought it was very funny that a law school professor like I would be interested in going to a meditation retreat. And, uh, and we met and uh, that sort of set in motion the next uh, 15 years of my life. And isn't there a, a very interesting atlas of emotion that came out yes. of that? 
Paul Ekman and uh, Dalai Lama conversation? Yes. Yeah, so the, the Atlas of Emotion is a, a fairly complicated introduction to all of the different variations on emotion. And in Paul's work, there are thought to be seven universal signs of emotion. Some people, um, one of his students actually at Berkeley believes that uh, there is an eighth emotion, which is shame. Uh, Paul doesn't think that counts as an emotion for various reasons. And then some people question uh, two of the emotions, the emotion of contempt, which doesn't show up in all cultures, and the distinction between sadness and and fear. So this was your connection to Paul. Um, I don't want to lose the one thing you said a couple of minutes ago now, the common belief that eye contact is significant. People can stare you right in the eye and lie through their teeth. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct from a research point of view. Right. Uh, so two things are correct. Uh, one is that uh, across all cultures, people believe that is the most important way of telling if somebody's telling the truth is whether they maintain eye contact. Uh, and that's uh, not true. Uh, there are individual differences in how much eye contact a person will ordinarily maintain. Uh, and then there are different cultural contexts in which people, even from the same culture, will behave differently. So people, when they're meeting with police in Japan or in South America, will avoid eye contact as a sign of deference. Whereas in the United States, that might be thought to be a bad thing for most people, uh, but for African-Americans avoiding eye contact uh, it's something that's culturally often done. And has a rich history behind it of self-preservation in many instances. Yeah, horrible, horrible history, right, that's correct. In fact, there was a crime in the South of what was called reckless eyeballing. So African-American men would get lynched if they made eye contact with a white woman or with an authority figure. Not in every instance would they get lynched, but that was something that happened with some regularity. So. When you teach your students at Hastings uh, Law School, University of California, are you still teaching uh, lie detection in that course? Yes. So I teach it in pretty much all of my classes in different ways. And the, the best way, I think, to learn it is in a kind of immersion way where we do it like I did when I was at uh, Harvard Business School in your class. We do it all in one day where people learn uh, what is the overall structure in a kind of immersive way? Then uh, the context of recognizing facial expressions, because that's the easiest way to learn quickly how to recognize if something is less likely to be true. Uh, and then we practice with some other uh, types of ways of recognizing lies, such as people thinking harder or people's changes in body movements. And then we apply it to uh, typically to negotiation broadly construed. So most negotiations involve broadly speaking lies, such as lies about what somebody's uh, bottom line is, how much they're willing to pay, uh, lies about what their authority is, lies about what other offers or possibilities people have. So I sort of focus in on those types of lies. And there's a fourth one that's important, which is uh, what's really motivating someone which we have to have a really broad definition of lie to cover that. So people often are motivated by things that they might not even be aware of. So someone might be motivated by feeling important or motivated by a fear of making a mistake or of getting a bad deal or blowing a deal, but people wouldn't necessarily consciously articulate that. So in some sense, it's not really a lie. We're really getting at what is the true motivation. So. Uh 
as you're talking about negotiation, you're you're making a case for uh, lying being a part of the territory in a way, in the way that you describe it. But can, can you say more about kind of ordinary lying? You've talked about that in your work. Uh, I think you have some data that suggests that uh, in the first 15 minutes of an engagement, you might see or hear two or three lies. Yeah, that's correct. So that uh, that work is by uh, someone Feldman, I think Robert Feldman, the liar in your life. And there's some uh, there are two bits of controversy to that. Uh, so one is what counts as a lie. So some of what he counts as a lie, these three untrue things, the first 15 minutes might seem to people to be trivial. So you might say to me, uh, don't you think Boston is one of the most beautiful cities? I really love living here. And I might say, yes, I have many fond memories of Boston, when in fact, having gone to Harvard undergrad, most of my fond memories of Boston are of going indoors after nearly freezing to death outside. <laughs> so, so that would be an example of one of the three lies that might occur. But that's one bit of the research, is that when people meet that they say untrue things. Uh, and so part of the controversy is what counts as a lie. The second part of it is, well, it's on average three things, but aren't there some people who lie vastly more than others? And that's also, uh, that's also true. But even with children, even with children, it is a developmental stage that children get the cognitive ability uh, to tell a lie. Uh, and lies uh, broadly construed. So I, I define a lie as uh, something that is said that is not true, right? I'm not saying lie in a moralistic sense. And it might be better, as I sometimes do, to speak about uh, harvesting the truth rather than detecting lies, because I'm not so much in the business of judging people for sharing the truth or not sharing the truth. I'm in the business of, and my mission is to help people get the truth that will allow them to be more successful and happy and lead to a more just uh, world. So but, it's not about shaming people for fearing, uh, for failing to tell the truth all the time. So that we're clear, <clears throat> Dan, I understand that your thinking has uh, obviously evolved as you've worked in this area, but I can't show you a still photograph and have you conclude that person is lying. You, you need context, you need to have some sense of how that person carries himself or herself and how that person speaks and so forth. You used to refer to those as hotspots when you'd see a deviation from how right, they Right, right, so deviation, right. So hotspots is the language that I believe Paul developed it. There could have been someone who came around the same time who developed hotspots and was used to teach uh, law enforcement primarily. Uh, I prefer the term soft spots. Hot spots implies there's some danger. Uh. For me, a soft spot uh, implies that there's something going on there that we might want to probe, but it might not because it's a danger. So a hot spot, when I train people for Homeland Security, definitely makes sense to say hot spots because if people seem like they might be nervous for no particular reason or they show fear when you ask them what their name is, that's a hot spot. They could be carrying some explosive material. They could be having contraband. They could be a danger in some other way. So hot spot makes sense in that context. Let me, let negotiation. Me, let me push a little bit on that though. Sure. I could imagine somebody could be and seem fearful, and what they're afraid of is that they're going to tell the truth and not be believed. How, how do you deal with that? Totally. So when we say, when we say hotspot, even within that, that paradigm, hotspot does not mean that someone is lying. Hotspot means, oh, 
here's something that we need to pay attention to. So I'm, I'm in my home right now, and if I noticed that there was heat coming from the stove, that would not necessarily be dangerous, but I would want to know that there's heat coming from a stove. In a certain context, it would make sense. In another context, it might indicate that there's some danger. So hotspot is not uh, what poker players would call a tell. Right. There's nothing that's ever been studied that 100% correlates with somebody saying something that's untrue. That's been looked at in uh, research on the polygraph. There's nothing there that's 100% accurate. It's been looked at more recently uh, with fMRI research, nothing that's there. So when we say hotspot, when I say soft spot, it means, ah, this is something that we should look at. So let's take this to negotiation. In a negotiation, whether it's uh, somebody negotiating about whether they're going to have a second date or not, and they're talking about their dating history, or it's in a negotiation for a sale of a large company, there might be 10, 15, 20, 100 things that one might ask follow-up questions about of that person or that one might look into further. One can't do all of that. And so what hotspots or soft spots do is they tell us, well, of all the things that are going on, this is the thing for us to look into. So yeah. if I'm asked, yeah. Uh, I'm just looking over at Kim, who has held many posts and had a lot of responsibility over time. But you've done a lot of clinical work. Um, when you're listening to one of your patients, one of your clients, and so forth, you have to be attuned to something of that sort. What, what's the terminology in psychology? Well, I was thinking, Clark, as you were talking, that uh, you're talking uh, so often about lying, but you're also talking about the varieties of truth that exist yes. in different moments, where the higher truth could be, I, I actually don't want to hurt your feelings about my sense of living in Boston and those memories of the cold winters. But uh, and and the the binary of true or or not true is uh, in some context makes perfect sense and there is a binary there. But in others there are not necessarily shades of gray but shades of meaning. Would that be fair to say? Yes, yes, that's correct. So let's let's use an example of uh, love. Suppose someone asks, "Do you love me?" Well, there are different kinds of love, right? So Greeks uh, theorized between the types of loves that are more erotic, more, er uh, more friendship-based, love of wisdom. So there's some ambiguity there. If you're hiring someone uh, at Harvard Business School or at UC Hastings or at Genentech, and you ask the person, uh, are you in here for the long run? People might have different ideas about what the long run means, how long that is. And uh, what it means to be in here, is it working full-time? Is it being fully committed? What does that mean? So it's not necessarily because people are even uh, aware that they're saying something that's a white lie. Uh, they might just not uh, have the same understanding or they might not actually fully understand the truth of themselves. So I understand that we're top talking a very big topic and that you could teach a full course in it. We have oh, three or so minutes left so that people can deepen their skills and awareness here what what should they be consulting what should they be reading do you think um, and if there are a couple of pearls of wisdom could you share them with us sure um, in terms of things that people can learn 
the number one thing to learn is there are clues that make it more likely that something is untrue or worth investigating. And for the audience that you probably have, I'd analogize this to the stock market. There's nothing that will tell you that this security is going to go up, but there are markers that would tell you it's more likely to go up than other things. There are markers that would tell you, wow, we should think about reevaluating our position. So you might call uh, this kind of technical analysis, or you might call it uh, other types of analysis for stocks. And here, uh, we could identify what are the soft spots or, or sweet spots based on uh, our research. The number one thing that people can take from this is to recognize what is someone's ordinary behavior or baseline and to figure out what that is. It often doesn't take more than a minute, but if you're meeting with someone you've never met, try to find some video of them online. Look at their Facebook page, look at their LinkedIn. That might vary with context, depending if they're speaking to an audience or one-on-one -on -one with you, but see what they ordinarily do. So people can't see me, but they can hear that I talk generally pretty fast. If I were to slow down and you're in a meeting with me, wow, that is a change from baseline, that would tell you maybe that is something that Clark thinks is important, or maybe Clark is not quite telling the truth right now, and that's why he's slowing down. So think about baseline, get data on baseline, recognize the baseline, that's one important thing. Second thing to look at that you could take away from this, were you gonna ask a question? Yeah, Clark, I, no? I, the interesting challenge that comes from this, it seems to me, is that uh, when there is one of these spots, uh, hot spots or warm spots or opportunities to ask a question, that's often not what happens. People make a conclusion that someone is lying, that they are Correct. at risk. And again, I appreciate in some circumstances, Homeland Security, maybe there's a, a need for that. But in the rest of our lives, um, how do we create the kind of mindfulness to notice the signal, but not necessarily move too quickly into a conclusion, reaching a conclusion about what that means? So one part uh, is clearly to develop in one way or another mindfulness. And one for negotiation relevant mindfulness part is to think about what is my purpose? What are my alternatives? So if I am looking for a dog walker, or a dog sitter for my dog, and my dog is this beautiful Tibetan terrier who's wonderful, and she's highly sensitive to negative emotion. If someone raises their voice, she'll drop to the ground and put her head down and think she's done something wrong or she'll be afraid. So if I'm at a dog park talking to somebody who might watch her and I see a soft spot or hot spot of a flash of anger on their face that most people wouldn't recognize, then I know, you know what? I have lots of alternatives uh, and I don't really owe this person anything compared to what I owe my dog. So I'm just going to move on. On the other hand, uh, if I'm trying to sell my home and there's someone here who's going to be a cash buyer and I get a signal that hmm, there's something dodgy about this person, but they're either going to come up with the cash or not come up with the cash, I don't need to call the person out on what they're saying if their offer seems to be so much more than the others and I'm going to verify it or not very soon. So we've covered at least some ground here on lie detection in negotiation, but also other contexts as well. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Clark. And if um, <clears throat> people are interested, they can Google my article, uh, which is quite long, called Mindful Judging 1.5, which is originally for judges, but can also be used by other people as well. Excellent. Excellent. Looking forward to talking to you soon. 
Thank you very much. And thank you, Kim. Thank you, Clark. Let's remind people about how they can chat with us and with their fellow listeners on our Negotiation 360 website. Well, it's not just the chat that they can have with us and other listeners, but there are other resources uh, on the site. Um, You can find my Negotiation 360 self-assessment and best practice app. There are links to online courses, and we're putting up articles that you and I have written together and maybe some others as well. So there's lots of stuff on agile negotiation and adaptive leadership. Much of it is free. We've even simplified the URL for podcast listeners. Here's how to find us. Just key in the letter N, as in negotiation, and the numbers 360.expert. That's N360.expert, and you'll find us.